everything comes from something is an unoriginal podcast about unoriginality because truly everything comes from something that's right my name is isaac ransom i'm one of the hosts of this podcast and if you enjoy the show you can check us out at patreon.com slash ecfs podcast throw a couple bucks our way we want to let you patreons know if you give it the five dollar level we are releasing our exclusive podcast episode Patreons will be able to receive this on the last day of every month. If you enjoy the show, as I already said, you can check us out on Patreon. I'm being redundant at this point, but what I really wanted to add was you can give a rating on iTunes. That helps out the show a ton. If you don't have any money to throw away, I totally get it. I'm a college kid myself. And or you can tell your friends and family about the podcast. That is what really helps the show grow. With no further ado, enjoy this episode. Isaac sounds a little bit, he's very sick today, so he sounds a little bit like the guy from the smoking commercial who has to, who has to close his throat in the shower. Uh, (laughs) I reject that hypothesis and I'm going to do my best to not crack my voice, but that's why we have Juzo here with us today. Oh, hello everyone. What's up? Juzo Greenwood. (laughs) There it is. That's the intro. That's fantastic. Just for the audience to know, I'm going to try to keep my talking to a minimum for this discussion, but Cameron is refusing to come up with any sort of witty segue for our podcast. I always do the segue. So witty. I'm so witty. No, I'm so witty. I was going to say that your, your, your vocal cords sound like a screeching violin, and hopefully that won't turn people off from listening to our really intriguing discussion about Quentin Tarantino, because we all saw this movie, uh, this past week. So, uh, I'm Cameron Tuttle. Boy, Isaac, you just butchered it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Everything Comes From Something. Isaac Ransom is the frog in the corner over there. Thank you. <laughs> and Juzo Greenwood. Resident uh, film expert without the degree. He brought seven pages of notes today. No, well, not prepared for the class. It was purely a coincidence that I wrote these <laughs> notes. I haven't written these kind of notes in months, but for some reason this movie uh, struck me in a certain way and I just started typing these things i love it episode 55 is all about quentin tarantino's latest film his ninth film correct? yes according to the posters that's where i saw it yeah if you count kill bill as one film ninth wait really he's counting kill bill as one film if you count kill bill as two films it's his 10th film what a if any kind of mistaken human 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 being (laughs) the film is called once upon a time in hollywood but there's, you forgot the ellipsis. It's once upon a time, dot, 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 in Hollywood. Is there really an ellipsis in the yeah, title? Yeah, there is. It's really kind of obnoxious. I think ellipsis is the hardest word I've said today with this cold. Mm. Yikes. What about, uh, don't talk anymore. Anyways. Um, Let's get into <laughs> we it. Love we love hearing your voice. We got to get into it. The reason I talk is to keep this show on track. Here's what we're going to do for you guys today. We're going to talk about this movie. We're going to talk about what we thought of it. Cameron and Juzo are probably going to have extreme insight because they are they love film and so does Quentin Tarantino. And I think this movie speaks to that, the fact that it's just revolving around Hollywood as it goes. I will do my best to share my opinions uh, once these guys kind of sum up the movie. I don't care. Are we going to get into spoilers? I think we Let's have to get into spoilers. Immediately? No, 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 not immediately. Okay. We can we could talk a little bit about our general opinions. Um, so both... Me and Juzo really loved this movie. Um, really liked. I, I don't know if I'd go quite to love, but 
I don't know. It might in in the future. I yeah. liked it quite a bit. I I like this movie a bit better than Hateful Eight. Um, I thought Hateful Eight was a really good movie, although it fell short in a few ways. Um, Hateful Eight is obviously his last his last feature, um, and his last project just in general, actually. Um, but he so and I thought I thought Hateful Eight was was a good movie, although it kind of leaves you with a really dour feeling. Um, we were talking about this this after we saw Once Upon a Time, and oh, it's a sick, sick film. Yeah, yeah. You you walk out of the movie feeling Hateful like, Eight, I mean, yeah. you know, like like you watch something that you weren't supposed to see in a, in a certain way. And I think I think that led to my overall, I guess my overall, not quite loving the movie in general. But this movie, I think, really, really leaves you with a sense of somberness and but also a sense of hope and sort of a sense of like looking back to the future or look looking back to the past with an air of like uh, doing better in the in the future i think that's that's what i really picked up from from the ending of this movie without going into too much detail from it here's the thing about this film i went and saw it pretty excited to see it because i've enjoyed a lot of the quentin tarantino films that i've watched and I haven't seen all of his work, but most of the stuff I see, it just has a fresh flavor that not a lot of directors have. I did not enjoy this movie. I thought it was really boring, and I do not recommend it to people. Um, but there's a really important context to this, and it's because I really didn't know anything about this movie or didn't have any sort of connection to research. I didn't know who the, what's the name of the family? Charles Manson. I didn't know and the, the Manson man- family. Tate murders. You didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about this. And I didn't know who the actors were supposed to represent. Margot Margot Robbie is uh, playing Sharon Tate, a right. young Sharon Tate, who, for other people who don't know, was the victim of this cult-led uh, terrible quadruple homicide. It was like four yeah. different people in this house in the Hollywood Hills that that were killed in August of 1969. There's speculation that there's more murders. Um, yeah, there's La Bianca murders as well. Yeah. So um, I didn't know anything about these murders. I don't know a lot about 1969 Hollywood. With that context in place, I think you would enjoy this movie more. If you had that context, maybe do a little bit of research. Yeah. I can tell that Cameron and Juzo both benefited from knowing more about it. Well, if you're if you're into true crime just generally, I think this is a kind of a staple in the in in the um, or like if you're into cults, um, this is a very interesting story. Just Cameron's into cults. I I love reading about cults. Cults are really fun. Uh, Great pop, time. Popcorn fair. <laughs> it's wonderful. Juzo, do you like cults? I have no opinion of cults. So, anyways, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's where my opinion comes from. I'm gonna do my best to sort of explain why in the future. But overall votes: should people go out and see this movie? My vote is no, unless you really care. I would say definitely see it. I think Cameron would agree. I would say absolutely um, see it. But not I, only, I, oh, go ahead. not only because you, well, not only because it's a unique film that I think people are going to be d- somewhat divided on, and there's a sort of there's a lot of interpretation to this film. But I also think it's important to see movies that are new and unique and not. Um, not you conventional. Know, yeah, not not, not conventional. And Tarantino really is kind of the only some one one of the only filmmakers. And this is something that that Red Letter Media said. One of the only filmmakers who's still just making movies. 
um, almost for them. You know, he, he's one of the only artists on that level yeah. of, I mean, there's a lot of people doing small stuff small for a 24 and people like Ari Aster or, you know, but like the only other people I can think of are like Jordan Peele or or Christopher Nolan who make movies that like actually do well at the box office yeah. that yeah. are original, interesting ideas. There's probably a few more that I can't think of. But. So if if you don't want to see that die off, um, I would say go see that movie. Oh yeah, that's you another know? reason to. I mean, I would definitely recommend the film, but with a certain asterisk of, um, sort of acknowledging Isaac's concern about the movie, which is that it is. It is going to be slower than you're going to expect for a Tarantino film. It's a lot more contemplative. It's it's very different than most of his films, other than perhaps Jackie Brown. If anyone has seen that, have you seen Jackie Brown? That's another film. Those two, they kind of go hand in hand for me in that they're about people who are kind of getting old, um, losing touch with the world, or feeling like the world is moving on without them, and and both are not quite as much driven by a, a revenge story or a, a big score they have to make. I mean, even Jackie Brown does have the plot element of the big score. That's not present in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A lot of the film is just a day in the life. It's, yeah. it's very, very... Um, it's a lot of just mundane things, like Brad Pitt just feeding his dog, watching television, um, DiCaprio running lines in his house with a tape recorder yeah, driving around the city Sharon there's a scene where Sharon Tate just walks down the street and buys a book and then walks back I mean it, it's like it's almost like it's it, it's it's amazing to see it in a big mainstream movie but, right exactly. but a lot of that stuff is oddly uh compelling and interesting I'm, I'm kind of not selling the movie by <laughs> describing all the most boring aspects of it but even those parts take on kind of a poignancy to them because you're seeing people of a time that's gone by you're seeing people who are struggling with this notion of feeling like their time is up particularly DiCaprio's character who feels like he's a has-been and seeing him um struggle with the kind of anxiety and and the insecurity that comes with that um even amidst a, a mundane setting those things are all things you can kind of relate to I think this idea of of being uncertain of your place um and and i i think this is um portraying a time in hollywood's history where the it was it was kind of up in the air for move quote unquote movie stars right um it, it was really a time where people were sort of trying to move to television sort of trying to to move on and do maybe do bigger things there were new upcoming um smaller uh smaller directors who you know a couple of years after this would be George Lucas and uh Spielberg, and Spielberg. Scorsese, all those guys and so like this was this was pre um what you might say like the academic filmmakers the new um, hollywood movie yeah new yeah. new hollywood but post the big uh, I mean, age, it was post. It was post. Um, basically, Cleopatra was the end of of that era, and so people started right. Hollywood. Hollywood oh, was that's a terrible film. Have you seen Cleopatra? I, I haven't. No, it's but impossible. I hear it's. I hear it's really bad. Um, but but that was the end of of the the old Hollywood, the big studio era, and it's when you started to see French films um, and Italian films. Um, play a bigger role in in 
the U.S. box office. So this movie really deals with a side of film history that isn't really talked about in in mainstream culture that isn't really that known. But for for someone like me and Juzo who um, is pretty intimate with the knowledge and and enjoys reading about the history and and tracking that sort of um, swing and fall, I, I think it's really compelling. It's really really interesting to see like these characters battle with with the changing world around them and also to see the contrast between their different relationships with that change Mm -hmm. particularly Mm -hmm. the main characters of brad pitt and dicaprio because as i said before dicaprio is just filled with insecurity even though he's the more successful one he's the one who's the movie star brad pitt is just a stuntman dicaprio is is nervous he's he's developed this sort of stammer he's he's um the the leading man image that he's grown up in of this sort of he-man that he uh, personifies is kind of moving in a different direction of a kind of a different kind of leading man that is not him whereas brad pitt who is living in a trailer with his dog and and he's not even doing much stunt work now because it's not doesn't really call for rick's jobs don't really call for that he's completely content in his life and he's completely sort of um come to terms with his place in the world and and seems quite content to just sit around and watch tv and fix the uh tv antenna drive around and to cruise yeah. around listening to joe cocker and one of the most yeah. beautiful scenes in the whole movie with the neon lights and and, it's and amazing. one of the um one of the most compelling lines in this movie well i don't know about compelling but it was really funny uh when i first saw it was he there's this there's the i won't spoil it but there's this big flashback um he's up on the roof and he says you know he's wondering why um Brad Pitt is wondering why he isn't getting roles at this point um and he thinks back about this one spe- specific time and then he's like okay yeah fair enough you know like he yeah, has this, yeah that's when he it comes back really, to him he's like yeah yeah he I, has I this really that. really yeah. clever like well it, it it just feels like he's he's accepted this new sort of fate um and he's happy with with um himself and how he's grown i think part of that um well i won't i'll save that part for spoiler territory but um yeah i think i think this movie is really um is really beautifully made it's really somber and nostalgic and but also strangely joyful in a lot of places it is and loving and i mean the 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 recreation of the time period is so vivid i saw with my dad who would have been like seven at the time and when the film ended he was almost he was almost getting choked up talking about these little mundane things that Tarantino would put in the movie, like the ice tray or the bottle of Ovaltine or the orange mac and cheese, the craft mac and cheese mm-hmm. that Brad Pitt mixes in his trailer. Like the, there's so many little details in the film that um, that give you this sort of immersion into the time, as well as the the sound design, the music, the kind of the the way it. Almost the music is almost always diegetic. It's within the scene, yes, so when it cuts yes. to a different location, you're in a different song, or you're listening to an advertisement. Um, everything about it gives you this feeling of walking through. Which actually is pretty strange for for Tarantino. Um, if yeah, you, because if he likes notice, montage scenes, and yeah. he he also does anachronistic music too. Um, of course, yeah, yeah. But I didn't notice Rap music in Django. I didn't notice thing. any anachronistic music in this film at all. I don't think there was any. I think yeah. it was all of the period of late sixties. Yeah. Here, here's what I want to comment on, if if I can speak. Um, <laughs> forgive me. Um, I cannot deny that this film has excellent 
thematic work, uh, it presents a strong feeling for the audience. I got to give it credit where credit's due. It can capture you into these little nuggets of feeling that are just excellent. Few scenes off the top of my head. Um, there's a scene on a ranch that is it has ton of like feeling emotion in it. There's a scene with a little girl uh, that Leonardo DiCaprio talks to that is just really awesome. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple other ones. You guys have any off the top of your head? I know there's one more that I'm thinking of. I just can't. Brad Pitt's interactions with a certain uh, martial artist. <laughs> you could right. say, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of heart and feeling in the stuff. Where I feel disconnected from your, your synopsis is, you, both of you guys live and breathe film, and film history, and this movie respects that. It dives into it. It, it, you, you. This is in your guys's element. It's not my element. So that had no nothing on me. Basically, yeah. I didn't live in 1969. I don't live. I don't live and breathe movie culture or history. I don't know anything about it. I could get the feeling and heart from the way it was presented and crafted so well. It's just the context of it all didn't click. And everything else around it seemed jumbled, boring, uh, just very strange to me. Um, and you guys were talking about flashbacks. I actually found those to be quite jarring. Any of the background dialogue, uh, th- a lot of exposition in the film, talking about people being like, oh, he's not telling the truth. Like It would be like a Deadpool voice in the back of the theater. That happened once in the beginning. Yeah, it happened once in the beginning, and where Kurt Russell comes in and says that that's not why he doesn't drive a car. You're talking about that part, right? It happens a few times. It happens well, towards the end well, too. Well, after after that, there's a timeline that goes on, um, which I won't get into too many details. Which was but, confusing. But the, first, the last third, there's a timeline. Yeah. Confusing for me because I didn't have well, any we context. Spoilers, we can talk about that, right? Yeah. About that. But all of the background dialogue there. For me, it just felt like the movie was really, really messy, and I love to hear your guys' heart and, and and the side of it. But it's like the reason I'm having a hard time recommending this film is because I don't believe there are a lot of guys like you, you guys that have the knowledge and the care about it. I feel like this movie was made for you guys. That's why I was excited to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was actually something that I took away, um, and and that me and Juza talked about when we first saw it was I've. My question to Juzo was, does this work um, cinematically? Does this work as a film? And and I think my answer is still yes. I think it does work as a film, but I think it's it's, it's hindered. Small details that get to us. I don't. I think the broad picture is still something that. Well, well, I think that's what I think that's what Isaac is saying is that he didn't understand. He didn't. Not only did he not get the the small details of it, but he also didn't didn't really get the the overarching um goal of the movie i I mean especially without the context of 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 sharon tate and who she was and and that situation and how it left an impact on um on on the on the film industry and on american culture just generally like i think i think without that context the movie doesn't doesn't work and and i think that's i think my 
prediction with that because I said that right right after we saw it. Um, my, I think, I think Isaac is a perfect example of, of my prediction of that. Um, and so my question to you was, well, if it, if you don't, yeah, yeah. To, to, to Juza, um, was if, if you don't know anything about it, if you don't have the context of the movie, does the movie still work? And, and Isaac is saying that, that it doesn't. I would agree. I, I, I think you do need to know just the general thing of Sharon Tate was killed by the Manson family. I think that kind of is an essential piece of knowledge you need to know. Yeah. In the same way that I think if you saw Fruitvale Station, which is a film about Oscar Grant, who was shot by Bart Police, uh, Grant Coogler's like first movie. Yeah. Um, if you see that film not knowing that this is a guy who's going to die in 24 hours... I don't think the, you're going to get the meaning of that film. And in a way, I, I find the films have a lot of similarity in that they're both films that show when you know tragedy is really close to befalling these people and they don't know it, these small details that are seemingly mundane become suddenly very poignant. Mm. Um, a person, Sharon Tate, going down to buy a book you know, or just walking down the street, going to a movie theater, seeing one of her own movies becomes very poignant and melancholy when you know that she's only got a few months to live. Right, and especially right, right. in her case, and in the case of Fruitvale Station too, which is a great film if you haven't seen it, um, both films show a young person with a lot of promise. Oscar, in the case of Fruitvale Station, Oscar Grant is trying to get his life together. He's trying to get a job, um, trying to support his kid. There's all these sort of elements of redemption going on for him and in the case of Sharon Tate you're seeing someone who is on the brink of great success she's just playing a she's like a third uh, rung star in this lightweight movie yeah um, it's kind of B comedy yeah B comedy with D- older Dean Martin but she's even that is bringing her a lot of joy and she's seeing and she's now living in the Hollywood Hills with a successful young director and she's on the brink of so much success and then so watching that you're seeing both the beauty of a young person who is um, caught in the throes of of the joy of f- finally finding success in life, and, also and the melancholy of the knowledge knowing, of knowing that she's yeah, doomed, knowing yeah. that she's doomed. Yeah. So I think a lot of the movie's poignancy and a lot of the kind of the the um, the contradiction of the the joy and the melancholy of the film comes from that knowledge. So I yeah, think I, I totally it is agree. good to know that aspect of it's it. necessary i think it's um, necessary but knowing needing to know the details of who steve mcqueen is i don't think is necessary. or like like the little references the I film think it has makes, i think it makes it, makes it enjoyable because you, you yeah. go oh, oh wow yeah that was a great impression of bruce lee or whatever but right um i mean i've never seen a bruce lee movie and i still enjoyed the scene with bruce lee so well and my my uh, my sort of comparison to this that i was thinking about was um if you watch kill bill and you just know, uh, you don't know anything about, uh, you know, sort of what he's taking inspiration from, right? You don't know Japanese martial arts films. You don't know Westerns. You don't, there's not this sort of g- generic, um, like genre, um, generic knowledge. Um, that movie still works. That movie still holds up. It's still fun. It's oh, still yeah. enjoyable. Definitely. You still really understand and get the mm-hmm. the purpose of that movie. And that film's but, built on a much more conventional narrative. Exactly. Too. Yeah. But this movie, I think it's really, really more intimately tied with what comes before it. 
it's really much more intimately tied with with the knowledge of Sharon Tate, with the knowledge of of Hollywood 1969. It's essentially the movie is um, not just a reenactment of of an era, but it's also it's also taking so much inspiration from um, from from what went on and from who these people were in real life, right? Yeah. So the, and what Hollywood was becoming exactly, and and yeah. and. Also, uh, another th- aspect of it that that feeds into this sort of melancholy feeling that the movie gives you is the parallel between Sharon Tate and uh, DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters, because um, it, it there's a parallel there about things coming to an end. Mm. People who are at you know DiCap- DiCaprio and Sharon Tate, they're both living in the Hollywood Hills and experiencing lots of success, but they're both kind of little do they both know on the brink of. Um, doom or failure um so it kind of that that feeling pervades the entire all the characters of the film yeah. um yeah great well i think it's time to get into some spoilers for the yes. for the movie before my voice goes completely um so you've been warned moving forward we're going to go through spoilers i think what we're going to break down this movie and do is first second and third act because i don't know i i just feel like that's the best way to kind of cut up the film um Let's start with the first act as far as analysis. Juzo, you're you're really prepared. I know you have a long list of stuff. For me It isn't really analysis, it's more just like critique. I mean, yeah. Yeah. For me, the um the entire first act was very in your face, but not in the best way. Usually Tarantino movies for me have super witty dialogue and it was like they were trying he was trying to get tapped back into that. I just did not connect with it up the front and even though like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio I felt like had incredible performances in this film I just I felt like the script was a little weak um and maybe it was because I didn't know what the heck they were talking about in terms of the little references and things that they were mentioning uh there's that beginning scene at the bar where DiCaprio is talking to that movie guy and they're kind of Al Pacino I don't know I don't know who it is. Playing, who is okay. he's playing a, a fictional director. He's playing like a movie, like a movie producer, yes, studio yes, mogul type. Yeah, yeah, and they're talking about their movies, uh, the movies that he's been in, and it's like this, this fun playing off. But I barely, I like just cracked a little smile. I don't know, like it just. I, I I will say the first time I saw that movie, I I was getting a little antsy during that scene because it was yeah. a lot of mm-hmm. of Tarantino long, having yeah. fun referencing things and doing little reenactments over the substance of the actual scene, which ultimately the scene does pay off in a way that, that does feed into the movie. And when you see it the second oh, time, you realize, so good. oh, that's what it's all about, is, is right. him basically saying, We're in you're on the brink of being a has-been. Yeah. You're on the brink of, of hum- being humiliated as the bad guy on these shows and always getting beaten up by the younger star. But in the 10 minutes of getting there, it is a lot of reenactment. And that kind of brings me to my big- biggest criticism or or... The thing I'm most lukewarm about in the film, which is the the sort of playful reenactments and more in joke references that Tarantino has fun fun with, including a whole section of the film where they're just kind of showing the filming of a western, mm-hmm. and you and you just get a lot of this kind of movie within the movie. And for me, it's it's interesting to watch because as a film person, because you're watching it. Um, 
we're watching Tarantino with great loving craftsmanship recreate these kind of trashy, not very interesting things from his childhood, uh, TV shows, films, but, and also little things that I'm noticing, like the way these bounty law trailers are edited where, you know, the character will say a quippy line and then someone will get shot and then he'll finish the quippy line. Like, it's like the editing is so spot on, but, for most people, I do agree that it's not that interesting. And yeah. for me, it was the least interesting. It, it sort of just, as you said, it, it made me kind of smile to myself. But it's not really, it doesn't further your understanding of Rick as a character. It doesn't f- tell you much more about the themes or story of, of the movie, um, other than just the sort of portrayal of the, the time in Hollywood. Um, so that that was sort of indicative of uh, of the problem. But ultimately, it gets to the more interesting themes, I think. I think. Did you agree with that? Well, I... That, that scene? Yeah, yeah. I, I actually really agree. And one of the reasons why I've kind of warmed up on the movie, actually, the, the more that I've thought about it, I keep thinking of the things that have impacted me, and I really just forget about the... It's almost 45 minutes that, that I kind of just don't care about. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. which is sad to say, and and I think again why it holds it back from being a, a really excellent it's like movie. The same reason this is a weird thing to bring up, but it's it's the same reason why a lot of people think like Return of the Jedi is a great film mm. because everything that's great in that movie you remember, yes, the Emperor yes, and all that yes, stuff, yes. and the things that are kind of silly yeah, or Jabba's whatever. Palace, yeah, yeah, you just forget, and yeah. so you, in your mind it, you hold it up as some great thing, right? But, right, yeah. exactly, yeah, and and so like there are so many. I, I think he needed to be a bit tighter on his gags. He needed to be a bit tighter on on how he how he structured Rick's um uh Rick's sort of like fall from grace, I guess. Because um, he has that that kind of long um opening sequence with, with Al Pacino where he's talking about like um you've been you you know, you've been this and you've been this, but I saw you on on you know, a serial Western as a, as a cameo villain this last week, you know, what are you doing? Like basically and you got your ass kicked. Yeah. Basically yeah. what are you doing? You're, you're making people think that you're, you're a has been. And then he, he, <laughs> he, he has this really funny scene with Brad Pitt where he cries in the parking lot. Yeah. Like um, cries into his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And he's, and he's like, I'm a has been. <laughs> yeah. It's, very, and, it's like f- interesting how funny and touching it is at yeah, the same time. Yeah. Um, and so he, you know, I guess where would you put the first act break? Uh, probably the party, the Playboy party. Um, I don't know. For me, the setup in the first act was just so boring, and there is no urgency, and that is one of the biggest problems that I have with this. Oh, the film, film is not urgent at all. There is no. there is no urgency, but I still think it's interesting just to watch these people and see how they behave and see who they are. I almost feel like this film would be better if it was just small individual nuggets or clips that you watched as a nominated film art project for instance the girl walking to go buy a book and then watching herself in a movie or something like at the same time it's R- like your, your criticism is actually one that a lot of tarantino critics share in that it's 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 individual um really well put together really well directed scenes that are not strung together by by anything anything close to mainly in the case of pulp fiction and glorious bastards right 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 so for me pulp fiction <clears throat> i really enjoyed but i had the context of someone saying well this movie's out of order you can enjoy it in like this kind of sloppy fashion even the beginning the definition of pulp 
kind of tells you that this movie is going to be a little bit of a mess, so just have fun, yeah. right? Yeah. Now, when I watched The Hateful Eight, it was precise. It was... No. I, I disagree, but keep going. It's, keep going. it's fine if you disagree. No, but it's, it is, there is a, a line of suspense that does carry through it Hateful feels Eight like, that is different than this new yes, movie. I would yes, agree with that. The yes. plot has a line, yeah. and there's nothing wrong yes. with being unconventional, but I was like, dude, for me... This is Tarantino really honing in on his, you know, his skill of creating a scene that has a nugget and making it one really long scene across one really long line. And I was like, I like this. Yeah. I think this is like a master, like a masterpiece of his work. And I'm like, I really hope this year's work continue in that. So, so with, with the hateful eight and why I did, I disagree in the overall sense of, of hateful. I think, okay. I think hateful eight is a really amazing suspenseful um almost like who done it movie yeah it's a scooby-doo episode for 60 percent of the movie right and then he he butts in he has a flashback uh, this i guess spoilers for for hateful eight but well, all i'd say is just the, the flashback is completely unnecessary he, he butts in he has a flashback um where he explains what happens and and you know what happens. It it doesn't really make any and also difference. It doesn't matter. The characters you're compelled by are are you already understand. You don't and, need to know these and things. And what's frustrating to me about that movie is he is he destroys the whodunit aspect of it and he he really he deflates the tension in the last third of the movie, I think. And that that's why that's what holds it back from being a great movie in my in I my can, opinion. I can hear where you're coming from. But I still enjoyed the whole thing. I, yeah, I, I, I did too. Well, I, I think agree, we all agree it's, it's a very good film and it's very well made. And 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 the the Agatha Christie who done it is kind of gives way to basically an extended Mexican standoff. Yeah, which is also very compelling and enjoyable. And Samuel Jackson's yeah. uh, nuts have been shot off. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> there are delightful things in that film. Um, delightfully disgusting. But yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's of a course. Well, film. Tarantino usually has some pretty disgusting stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah. this movie does it doesn't besides the violence at the end. Yeah, is honestly like it's so wholesome. I oh, mean, it's, it's such key, a wholesome mo- yeah. movie. And, and and it's one of the things that I loved about it was that sometimes when I go into a Tarantino movie, I I kind of have this like there's a there's a bit of naughtiness to Tarantino. There's a bit of um, like mischief, especially early Tarantino. You feel this like. He he kind of has a schoolboy attitude to making film, mm-hmm. which and I think edginess to it, which I yeah. think shines in his early work, and then as he's grown up and as he's matured, that really hasn't hasn't that hasn't been the thing that stuck for me um, about his films, and and actually that's that's one of the things that most um, frustrates me about about new Tarantino is that he feels like he has to. Um, he feels like he has to tap into this almost like mischievous edginess, this like schoolboy attitude when he's a he's an old man <laughs> at this point. You know, he's like he's not a, an edgy young rebel anymore. He's he's an adult. And it feels sometimes it feels like in Tarantino's movie, he he's um he he's Steve Buscemi with his backwards hat saying, "Hey, <laughs> hey, fellow kids," <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he's got this he's got this attitude of, or like, also just trying to please his fans who yes, know exactly. He, he knows his fans want 
the violence, the craziness, right. the subversiveness, the uh, constant language, all, all these things, which are, I always find enjoyable in his movies. I, 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 I've seen all of his movies. I have enjoyed every one of them to differing degrees. Um, but I like that he's gone in this sort of direction where he's, he's carried back all these yes. different things that yeah. he's known for just in favor of making a movie that where these characters, I felt like I cared about more and they felt more like real people than any movie he's made other than maybe Jackie Brown. Yeah. So I think this, this movie was really him at his most mature in a lot of ways. Like he, it, it felt like he didn't have to necessarily plead, please his audience, uh, please the Tarantino crowd. In fact, I kind of, in a lot of ways I feel bad for Tarantino because he, um, it almost feels like since Hateful Eight, the culture and the film film culture in general has. I would say since Django, honestly, Django. Yeah, has yeah, a lot of yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, has swung so far against Tarantino um, that I think I think he he actually gets a worse rap now than he did than he did any time before. Well, you know, 2004 from, from stupid people. I mean, I mean, it should be so vulgar, but well, I mean, it was uh, stupid back then when when they were criticizing the violence, and it's stupid exactly. now when yes, you know. I mean, it's it's people who because it's it's not everyone. You're seeing a lot of debate going back and forth about this movie about how um, how justified the violence is if the violence is misogynistic if it's not, and you're seeing people who are not. It's not a not divided along political lines. A lot of people saying, really, we're having sympathy for these Manson girls who right, cut exactly. a fetus out of a woman's womb eight months pregnant. Like, really, we're going to yeah. say th- this woman doesn't deserve to have her face bashed in. I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of people going back and forth and people calling out this sort of kind of um, small minded, idiotic criticism against the movie i think there's but, there are valid criticisms to be had but but the, i think the fact that the movie was is targeting women more than men i think is but i think silly. independent of the criticism of this movie the the film culture has gone from oh yeah tarantino he's a great dude we love him he's a rebel he he's a he's an outside thinker to oh tarantino he says a lot of transgressive things in his movie oh, i will tarantino, say, I think people have been annoyed he, with tarantino though since pulp fiction because he was so much in the public eye and, and i've heard mick talk about this how he beca- there was such an oversaturation of tarantino mm, and mm, and a worship of him being the second coming of christ that yeah, there yeah. was kind of just an attitude of oh god we're sick of this guy and he and he kind of has a, a a vibe on on talk shows of seeming full of himself. I think definitely. I wouldn't say it's entirely. Uh, it's not that it's not his fault, but I definitely see Tarantino as someone who is like a little bit on the spectrum. Like yeah, he, I could. Yeah, he's the type of person who doesn't when he says things. I don't think he fully understands the way they sound. Like when he he talks about how great his dialogue is or how it just sounds like bragging. When I think mm, he probably mm, just mm. is is saying the literal truth of what he thinks but but i think i, I think people have um have almost this this weird like oh it's cool to not love tarantino anymore you Whoa. know like there's this there's this real there's this real movement in the film in the in the film criticism industry of like anti-tarantino-ness i think at at, at this point is he history. kind of like easy to dislike too like he's kind yeah, of a just weird sleazy yeah. guy, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if he's sleazy necessarily. He he just Doesn't comes he, like, off push as... people on set and whatnot. What about that? No, con- that's not true. Th- there was a there was a an incident with Uma Thurman where um, 
he the the car that she was driving was not particularly safe um but it needed to be that way for the for the shot her to do it. and he convinced her to do it yeah um, but she regretted doing it and she felt like she and, was but the, she but had the been car got the car got in a crash um and he he said that it, it was the biggest regret of his life it's it's um, totally it's the sort of thing where it's which, like as as a director i would never do that isaac just spilled all over himself which is hilarious but oh goodness but I would this comment, is an audio podcast you don't really want to hear me speak so in any case um I wouldn't do that; those things as a director, right. but it was not a criminal act. I think no. we should make that clear. Also, we don't want to get sued for no, slander. No, and, and, and in fact, I don't know. I'm, I'm of two minds about it um, because I think there's a certain amount of um, blame that Tarantino ha- has to... I mean, he, he really does have to take responsibility for, um, for that incident in that he... He was the one who put his actors in that situation. He was the one who, um, you know, convinced her to do it, even though he knew that it probably wasn't wasn't the safest or probably wasn't the best. Um, and and he was the one who, and and something wrong did go did happen on his set. He's the director. He should take responsibility for that. And I think he has. But but at the same time, in my mind, there's I I have a. Well, I, I listened to a to an interview with Werner Herzog, um, and he has um, he has a few really amazing hot takes about filmmaking um, that I think that I think should go around to any um, any any director really should should take this to heart and not necessarily take his advice, but but take his attitude um, to heart. He is someone who <laughs> who wants to mitigate risk as as much as possible but is also willing to do things that are that are completely outside the bounds of law and um oh. and normal normal order um he stood on the tips of volcanoes yeah. filmed he, in he, antarctica he filmed yeah. in in uh china without a visa or a, a permit where he it, it was horse very to film cle- about north korea they filmed in north korea into a film of volcanoes yes yes exactly He's out of his mind yeah so he he has this really really transgressive view of what what filmmaking should do and what and what many would consider something that is that extremely dangerous and extremely um unwise and unsafe he would consider necessary for for filmmaking um as a, a, a as an art and as a um as a piece of history and so so in my mind i'm willing to forgive tarantino if he made the judgment call that this is necessary for for the film this is necessary for my um for, for for my uh my my artistic vision and if he recognizes that it was probably the wrong choice you know what i mean like the, yeah they're, they're, i disagree with the with the idea of of art justifying endangerment or putting yourself in danger or putting other people in danger like i i know i don't think there's any justification for any of that and but at the same time who he is and what he's done behind the scenes to me holds no water in terms of my opinion of his films i think it's just ridiculous to uh to use those uh, pieces of judgment um of his character and i think people also conflate him as a person with his movies because Mm, they see him mm. as kind of this edgy film nerd guy like and reminds him of probably a lot of you know 
jerk off film students that yes. people know. Yes. Um, and who and so, love his films. Yeah. So then you see this yeah. guy's movies as as being that way of being like edgy and subversive and trying to shock people when really they're that to an extent, but people I think don't recognize the level of sensitivity and thought and humanity that's in many of his films, maybe not like death proof or kill bill, but like Django, for example, is a film that turns the slave era into a spaghetti Western, which Mm. on paper would sound like a thing that's incredibly in poor taste when actually at the time it was probably the most honest film ever made about slavery Mm. that Mm. actually showed slavery for what it was, which was horrible, which is a weird thing to say because you think that's common knowledge. But if you actually look at most films that took on slavery, let's, let's be fair. That film did come out the same year that, uh, it came out one year before no, 12 sorry, years yeah, of life. It came out one year before 12 years of life. So, so yes. like two very different takes on slavery, oh, of but course. also, of course, also one that, um, I, I think Tarantino has a philosophy behind his, his violence and his antics and his, um, sort of extremities where, whereas someone who, um, someone who just shows, I'm not saying this is this is good or bad necessarily, but like like Twelve Years a Slave really was was almost more of a historical movie and something that showed the the gruesome reality as it was. Where and 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 Django was something. Twelve that, Years a Slave is like a. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah. Um, Django was something that um, almost brought brought slavery and brought that topic to modernity without without comparing it necessarily to our modern age it's, it's, it's something there, that there are two great ways of showing the truth mm, it's like 12 mm. years slaves a slave is like if you brought a film camera into yes, 1864 yes, yes. and django unchained is like a van gogh painting of right. the same era yes they're both exactly two different ways of getting to the truth that's such a good way of putting it um but i mean if you look at the the violence towards slaves in Django, it, there's a sharp contrast in the way he shows that violence as just real and horrible, and the violence against the slave owners, yes. which is delightful, cathartic. Everyone's cheering in the audience and when fun, that happens, and fun. Oh, it's it's amazing, and, and it's something that I think um, comedians do, um, and Tarantino does, and not a whole lot of filmmakers other than that actually do but but comedians are able to look at something um that's real and terrible and disturbing and then flip them on their head and make them hilarious and funny yeah. and oftentimes people uh, misinterpret yes. that flippancy and using humor as disrespect when oftentimes when a comedian does a joke about something that's really t- rape or or slavery or something very uh, something terrible transgressive yeah oftentimes they're they're not disrespecting the thing itself. They're they're they are commenting on something around it, the behavior yeah. of a slave owner or the psychology of rape. Or they're not actually saying that this thing is funny. And Tarantino right. never. My, when when I told my dad that two years ago, whenever this new movie was announced, that he, Tarantino was doing a movie about the Manson murders, my dad like groaned. He was like, "I don't want to see that movie. That mm. just sounds awful." Mm. And then, lo and behold, the movie is treats the real life violence with incredible sensitivity or i mean it's sort of in the background of the movie it's not on screen and it's it does not exploit the real life tragedy in any way but finds a way for you to still feel the tragedy as much as if you did show it on screen maybe more in this kind of backdoor way by not having happen at all we're in spoilers and, yeah and and uh, oh yes yeah, spoilers yeah this 
Well, you you should have already seen the movie. So. Well, well, really fast. Oh man, I forgot I couldn't talk. <laughs> Listen to you guys talk this whole time. Um, I know we said we're gonna break down the acts. For me, the oh, second the that. second act because we're gonna get to the third act. I'm assuming is what you guys want to yeah, talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, the second act is where for me the movie started to pick up because I saw I think like three splitting storylines: one with Brad Pitt, one with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and then the female actress was Margot her? Robbie. Margot Margot Robbie. You get like these three individual little story nuggets. For me, the Western town, uh, like scene with Leonardo DiCaprio acting was actually really, really fun because it was so meta. That's so shocking because Juzo and and I kind of thought it was long too, but but Juzo said that would have been the most um, arduous part of the movie if you if you didn't really like or care about. Well, yeah, I did uh, say that, that earlier. For yeah. me, for me, I thought Leonardo's Leonardo's uh, acting and it was so interesting to watch him switch from actor to like the person he's yeah. playing in the movie. Oh, I, the, I agree with that. And yeah. the way the camera would move, but then suddenly when they say cut the rest of the camera crew and everyone would sort of fill in and then come out, like leave the scene very quickly. And it's right back to like yeah. the shot. I was like, this is very, very interesting to me. Now when there's a scene with Leonardo's best acting moment, I didn't think it was as strong as um, the scene with the camera revolving around the poker table, which I thought was more of like a display of Leonardo DiCaprio's acting and the meta play on shooting a film and what the experience behind the camera or being in front of the camera is like. Um, I thought that was an engaging part. The whole part with the ranch um, for me, super engaging wet fart of an end for me. Cause all the tension just mm-hmm. dies with strange comedic violence towards the hillbilly looking guy. As he's leaving, oh, that was beautiful though. Wasn't that wonderful? Sure, I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know like what was going on really, because when they got to the ranch, I'm like, why are these hippies treated like scary? Uh, like, because I didn't know anything well, about so the you, family. You, you, you didn't catch the cult kind of. Like, yeah, I guess you wouldn't know. I, I yeah. mean, for me, it was like, okay, this is kind of cultish, but I they're just kind of bums. And there's like an ominous but, vibe but with these bums again, who are giving horse in, tours to these people, again, which to, is very weird. To, to fill in the the more historical context and why it actually, I think, worked within the film world is that at that time, because it was you know a couple months before the murders, that's all the people saw of the of the Manson family. They were basically just this weird hippie religious family who right. lived. It. I mean, they were they were pretty underground, but like, but like people kind of knew about them. He, uh, Charles Manson, actually had a record deal like like ten oh, yeah, years early. Cool he yeah. he was he was kind of famous, but not really. I mean, he he they lived on an old Hollywood studio set, so like there was this. There was this air of like, yeah, these are kind of just weird hippie people, but like they're not sinister. They're not all that bad. Like, I don't know who who cares about them. And that's what people thought at that time. And so like you see the you see yeah. the like drips of, OK, something's wrong here. Something's going to go weird. But 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 he feeds it to you really slowly. Yeah. And I think that's why it works for me. Um even even though I I mean I I know what you mean um, that like it's kind of it's kind of like vaguely hinted at that they're that they're this like 
weird cultish thing um and i don't think it's a i don't think it's a wet fart ending of a scene um because really the payoff happens later in the movie but um well and and the scene is more about it's not less about um a culmination of the relationship between brad pitt and the and the hippies it's more just about showing you in a more dramatic context than the rest of the movie but like the rest of the movie it's showing you who brad pitt is and showing mm, how he responds mm. to this right yeah and and the, yeah. the level of intelligence and also the level of confidence i mean think calm about calm and collected think and about very, the, yeah. yes the contrast between pitt in that scene where it's so clear there is some seriously unstable evil stuff going on amongst him and he's still just barrels right through he's not intimidated by the girl as they lock the door he's like i'm coming right in i want to make sure my friend is okay the old man and he's completely unfazed by any of it and then contrast that with dicaprio who's just on a film set the most low stakes thing in the world and he's freaking out in his trailer he's throwing his hat he's breaking glass he's losing his mind over this thing that's to most people would be very trivial would be it would be you could be so lucky to be a Hollywood actor. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so again, it's an interesting study in contrast and Pitt is just so great in that scene and the way he's showing this person who's gathering the information of what's going on and holding his poise while he's actually maybe not scared, but while he's well, anxious and, about and, that, there's something going on and who's not going to back down yeah. to, to what he sees as almost a threat to, to someone who he knows. And yeah. And, and, and also, it shows that he has a certain amount of loyalty. I mean, yes. obviously that that's been built up throughout the movie, Rick, but like yes. he he has he has this loyalty to not just with Rick, but but with someone who he basically only tangentially knows, but he wants to make sure that something bad isn't happening to him. You know, so so I don't know. I think, I, and, and it has to do a lot that that keys into the themes of the movie too, because it by the end of the movie it's. It's these people who are the washed up dregs of Hollywood mm. saving the new Hollywood, right, right, saving right. Sharon Tate. And also, but also at the same time, he's looking after the old on its last, uh, you know, last dregs Hollywood. That's the old man in the old movie ranch that used mm. to be the successful place. And now is this place of decay and evil. Um, but he's he's making sure that guy's okay too, and and I I love the scene with him and the old man Bruce Dern, you know, giving yeah. another great performance as the old man, oh, and so good, and and Pitt the way he he goes from the, the intimidating, you know, guy to a really sensitive kind of almost like like a, a, a father son kind of thing going on where he's he's checking in with this old guy and making sure the old guy knows who he is and you know are these what are these women doing to you what happens if squeaky gets mad like these questions he's asking him and and the way the scene is written is so great because the old man never says anything explicitly mm. but just in the way he says things and the way he's he's talking to him it is so i mean i i think you could tell that there's something very wrong when the old man is telling him, like, I don't want her to get mad. Like, there's a lot going on there. I think you can, yeah, well, you can see. Yeah, well, I was that. just kind of confused by that whole interaction because I, I I, don't know. It was just really weird because he's like, I'm fine. Go away. I'm fine. And clearly he's not fine, right, in the situation that he's in. But the old man is, like, cocky and really annoying almost he's like get out of here get out who are you what are you talking and it's just like he's obviously got dementia but yeah yeah well he's more confused i mean he does even say like 
he says something like you like you, you touched me to get today that you cared about me or that you came down to visit mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. but i really got to go to sleep you know like he's sort of like He's just funny. an exhausted it's a, old man. It's a really weird, yeah, it's funny, it's funny scary. interaction. It's a lot of different things. And I that's what I, like I didn't get about. any scared. I was just like, "What is this conclusion from this tense?" Well, sinister, walk? maybe. I mean, it's it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know, and I didn't have the context of the ranch, and then it's just awkward where he's walking out and beats that weird hippie that's laughing at him, and then there's the tension of the horse coming back. What's gonna happen? Oh, he drives off. Scenes over. I'm like. But also the way he, he, he hits that guy and then he just takes command of that where he is outnumbered like 20 to 1 and he just takes command of that whole thing. He says one step closer and I bash this guy's skull in or whatever he yeah, says. Yeah, no, Brad Pitt is great. Oh my God. It's it's just awesome. And the guy's feet flying in the air. <laughs> yeah. I, I was like, I almost cheered when that happened. I think you laughed like, <laughs> like, a, like a hyena. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that I like the ranch scene, even though I felt like it kind of was, or I I, I didn't like its resolution tech, like by any means. The stuff with uh, Margot Robbie, it felt like I was watching a dog, like walk around a park, like a really happy dog, and like she's just so nice okay. and innocent, you know. And I, I just was kind of like, what am I supposed to be getting out of this right now? I will agree that I I wish. In a way, I wish the movie was longer and it focused more on, like, fleshing out Sharon Tate as a person. Mm. More than just, like, this sort of wistful memory of a person. Like, it's more like a memorial, almost, or a And or, I didn't have, a, I didn't have yeah, it, exactly. any well, of that context. So, for me, she's just a two-note character that I don't really know what she's doing. She's just wandering around happy. I'm like... Yeah, you do need to know what? the context for, for the poignancy of her... Again, it's the whole Fruitvale Station thing. The poignancy comes from knowing her her fate. Um, but doesn't that rub you guys as like almost bad filmmaking for a film that has so much exposition? I was still lost on who this character is, and I'm like, I, I thought film was all about. I mean, writing is like show, well, don't tell. But this movie tried to tell me so many things. And there I wasn't got, much exposition. I mean, it, it, they tell you it's Sharon Tate. They tell you she lives next to Roy Polanski. They had a freaking narrator um, in this movie. What do you don't well, tell me the, that at the end? I mean, the, but, not much. But again, though, not much during the first uh, two hours of the film, though. But again, the, the the actual when the narration comes in and and it did. I guess we can move on to the to the third act then, um, if that's all we want to say about the second act. But the 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 third act starts and there's a narration about about what uh, what Rick does in Italy. Um, it goes through how he's got a new wife and blah blah blah. He comes back um, and he and it comes back to him being like, okay, I'm gonna have to sell my house. I'm gonna have to to sort of queue up this this new chapter in life. But but we both know it's. Rick and um, uh, Cliff both know that it's kind of the and, end of their relationship. And all three characters are on the precipice of a new stage in their life. Right. She's eight months right. pregnant. Um, Cliff doesn't know what he's going to do. He's He's got to go off somewhere. And DiCaprio's now married and moving back into his house. So yeah. it's all that, that, that change that they were all worried about in the first part of the movie has now come to fruition. But Was this scene not jarring for you? It, it is. It is. a Well, and this is something that we talked about, um, Juzo, when we first saw it. We talked about how it kind of felt like um, the whole movie uh, leading up to this part 
was this was going to be like the same weekend or the same day that this all happened oh but yeah, then, yeah but then when it jumped and it's like oh uh, what is it like three months later or whatever yeah six months later um yeah it felt like oh oh wait so like this was this was Just almost tangential life, you know yeah. yeah exactly um and i i actually kind of agree i think it might have worked better if it was like the day leading up you know, if it was sort yeah, of like... I don't like, think it would have hurt the movie that much if it just... That was how the movie ended. Though the fact... Though you would have to kind of connect the things of like him... Cliff becoming obsolete, Cliff leaving, because that's kind of part of like... Cliff turns out to be very useful instead of not useful to yeah, him anymore. Yeah, yeah. Like that's part of the, the power of that ending. So you need to change a few things up. But I don't know what would have been hurt by it. I also just think speeding through with the narration I'm of two minds about it because on one hand I think the narration does a good job especially with in my dad's case in luring you into a sense of almost like documentary yes kind it, of feeling yes. a feeling of inevitability that we're leading up to that thing that for most people who if you know what's the movie's about um the thing that we've all been dreading for the movie, because the whole movie, you, you know, this we're gonna have to get into this thing that is vile, nasty, evil thing that we have been very happy to avoid for two hours and you know, fifteen minutes. Um, so it, it lures you into this idea that you know, uh, this happened, this happened, this happened. It seems very literal, very it it doesn't it's it's the opposite of the heightened Tarantino alternate history thing that you might yeah. expect. So even though I was kind of expecting it, just because he's done the alternate history thing with Django and bastards. Um, I think for a lot of people using that narration can lure you into a false sense of um, what the opposite. Of security, yeah. What it, it, remi- it almost reminded me of an episode of like, um, um, like unsolved mysteries or something. It, it was, was like, exactly, it, it yeah. was very much Murder mystery. Thing. It, it was very much leading and it lured me on too of this. Like, Oh, okay. This is where he gets into it. This is where he gets into the, um, the really gruesome, um, you know, whatever this happens. And, and, and I agree again, going back to your point, Isaac, that, that it feels jarring. It feels like a jump into, into sort of this unknown territory, but I actually do think that is kind of its point. Like the, it has a, it has a, a purpose more than most narration in most films. And you're, for you, the purpose is? Th- is to lure you into the sense okay, of, of, of feeling like this is a, an unsolved mystery. I don't. This is like recant, recanting what weird thing is going to happen before the, the Sharon Tate. Also, works. another thing, hinting that the characters don't have control over their destiny. Yes. It's almost like the voice of God yes. is just yes. moving these people along and there's nothing they can do about it until they can, ultimately. And that's the subversive thing that happens. I don't disagree with you in terms of building up something big with the clocks counting down. One of the complaints that my girlfriend, Juliana, said about it is she felt like they did the times too many times where she's like, now they're going to dinner and the other person's going to dinner. Why not clock when they use the bathroom? Like, it's just like, it felt so many times with the time. Hmm. And then there was a chunk of exposition beforehand talking about what happened to their lives. That was the drawing part I was talking about. Not necessarily like the clock counting down. The clock counting down I was okay with, even if it happened one too many times. For me, the exposition issues I had was here's everything that's been going on with their lives for the last six months and you need to know right now because something is going to change. We're in the third act now. Here we go. And I'm like, why is this happening in this film? Also, at the beginning, there's exposition. 
and there's weird character exposition as well. Uh, there's a scene at the Playboy Mansion where there's this random guy who's standing there, and he's like, oh. <laughs> you mean Steve McQueen? <laughs> I don't yeah. care, and okay. I don't know. Okay. He just stares at these people. Oh, this is this person, and this is this person, and this is this person, and this is what they're doing. And I'm like, this is atrocious as far as I can. Oh, I completely disagree. I think that scene, that's a great scene because it's, again, it's I was like, rolling my eyes. I was like, I don't know who these people are. But, I but, don't care now. But I don't, I mean, I say Steve McQueen because he's a famous guy, but I, I don't have a connection to Steve McQueen. I've never seen any of his movies. Um, for me, that scene just works because it's, it's again, just showing these people sort of young and innocent, dancing around, not knowing what's about to befall them. And, and the way McQueen is, is telling it, it's like, I don't know. What's the feeling you got from that scene? That that's it's it's strangely moving to me. That that whole thing of the dialogue of him describing these people and then talking about how she has a type and him saying I didn't stand a chance. Like this kind <laughs> of like Yeah, well the, the um I guess it was similar in a way. I I don't know if it's necessarily um all that well done compared to the rest of the movie, but it ties into this to to the prior themes of um old Hollywood moving on to the new guard, right? And, and this this is this is two, you know, older um who was the who's the guy Steve McQueen was talking to? Um I can't It was remember. a girl. Yeah. Was, oh yes, yes. Yeah. It, I forget who something. Well, anyways, it's Steve McQueen who at this point reached the peak of his career about, you know, 5 years before. Yeah. Um and had been uh I guess what Great Escape yeah, oh, was 64. Mm-hmm. Um Right. Yes. Yeah. Sixty-three or four. Yeah. yeah. So, so he had he had like reached the the pinnacle of his success. He was kind of coming down from that. Um, he was looking at these new young, upcoming filmmakers who are who are having this weird like, um, I well, guess it's like, like an inexplicable relationship. It's this yes, thing that yes, yes. that's almost like too good to be true. Like she left yes. this guy, but instead of this guy being left alone, they all came together and they all became friends. It's like this utopic thing. And this older person who's like past his prime looking at these weird hippie young people yeah, yeah. and looking on them like, wow, this is so it's, it's almost like he can't be a part of this. He's just looking on it and he can experience it from afar, but he can't be part of it. And th- there's a, there's a certain amount of like, Oh, you young naive kids! Essentially, yeah, is basically yeah. what he's looking at. Um, and I think, I think that again, knowing the no- the knowledge of what happens to them, you kind of feel that, and and you're like, you're like, oh wow, that there is a certain element. I mean, okay, so Polanski, I think the portrayal of Pol- Polanski in this movie had to probably be a little bit um, <laughs> vague, I guess. But but Polanski character, yeah, Polanski. In real life, he had a very tragic upbringing, and then this moment—the what actually happens in real life—he has like one of the Sharon, worst lives any person. Absolutely, yeah. the Sharon Tate murders <laughs> is like is like a deeply, deeply tragic thing that, that yeah. Happens his parents die in the Holocaust, and then his oh, well, and yeah. not just his parents die in the Holocaust. He literally is fleeing in Poland. He's like as as like a what is he like eight years old? He's like running through the the Polish. Uh, countryside trying right. to find yeah people, yeah oh yeah he know. was on the run yeah. yeah and so like so like he he obviously has this this really and again not to talk about about Polanski in 
Uh, I mean, in, in his youth, he was he was well, not, not he's a, bad a person guy, of an incredibly tragic backstory, and then and, and then, then he does tragic things, turned yes. into sort of a monster himself with this whole yeah. sexual assault or sexual. He, well, he, he raped a he fourteen year old. Let's girl, not try yeah. and seem like we're talking we're, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, he he raped a fourteen year old girl and after been, this, and he's happened. been on the run since. Now he's eighty something years old. He's, uh, yeah, and that was in like the eighties, right? 70s i believe yeah so it would have been i mean it was after this but but basically polanski up to this point he had a he had a certain amount of well he had a large amount of tragedy um in his life and it was basically about to get more <laughs> more tragic from there out then on out so um so i don't know i thought i thought steve mcqueen looking at these at these young sort of um naive and hopeful filmmakers oh you're bringing it, the polanski thing because he doesn't mcqueen doesn't know all the stuff about Polanski. to him right, Polanski exactly. just looks like a young cool hippie who's at the top of his game he's right, made rosemary's right. baby i get what you're talking about. yeah um and so there there's a certain amount of um well i guess i guess it was it was the scene felt very um uh i guess it it had a perspective about the old guard and how they're they're kind of closed off and and judging almost as well as the new guard who are um who are stepping into something that they don't really understand um and i think that's why that that's why it it was impactful for me and it didn't just feel like a um it's not just a, exposition because it's really so, revealing something about character it happens to be a character who doesn't uh, have any other scenes in the film but it's still it's like I'm sure there's other Tarantino movies characters I can think of where it's just like a, a one-off person that reveals a lot about themselves just in the mm-hmm. one scene for some reason I'm blanking on who that would be in like Pulp Fiction or whatever You're like Christopher Walken comes yeah. in for just one yeah. scene and just in like three minutes he shows you so much about who he is and then he's never seen the rest of the film um, in terms of screenwriting class that's not something that you're supposed to do but in actuality it can often be kind of a nice little it's just, it's color for your movie it's it's uh it adds to the world it adds to yeah. the feelings in any case i want to conclude by saying the the ending of the movie where there's this this huge reversal that i wasn't expecting even though um tarantino very often changes the the history the historicity <laughs> Um, of his films, he changes what actually happens. He shoots Hitler in Inglorious Bastards. Um, uh, I guess Django doesn't really like. There's not history necessarily that's changed, but it's just like anachronistic and yeah, and strange. Um, but but the the big reveal at the end of this movie is that he saves Sharon Tate by well, it's not even intentionally, scared. right? Just, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the through just DiCaprio drunkenly yelling at them, well, hi, being high on LSD. Yeah. yeah. No, no, oh, no, DiCaprio no, yeah, is yeah, just sorry. drunk. Yeah. He just comes out like ah, goddamn hippies, and he tells them to uh, to get out of there, and then they they target them instead of the Tate household. Right. Exactly. And exactly. then a high out of his mind on acid <laughs> pit. Along with the help of his dog, who we haven't talked about the dog. That oh, dog is one of so the great sweet. dogs in any movie. That dog is amazing, an amazing actress, yep. an amazing character. Uh, they take out all the the Tate killers. Yeah. And it's absolutely, I mean, I was like beside myself with glee watching this because it's, I think it, a big part of it, and the reason I think I, it was even more satisfying than the cathartic violence in Django and Bastards is 
you like Brad Pitt so much and you like that dog so much mm. and and I was worried they were going to kill the dog man I oh, when yeah. that they come up and the dog's like looking back and forth and dog sees what's going on that they don't they've got a gun I was like oh don't kill the dog mm-hmm. and that that reversal of it is just so satisfying it's so and satisfying with the music yeah. and 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 the the creativity of the kills I mean I thought us was creative <laughs> in its home invasion defense violence but this was even more just like you know can to the face uh, dog on the nuts. I mean, it was beautiful, and, and then and then the payoff of the flamethrower. I think we can all agree. Oh so yeah, fun. no, the <laughs> last glorious. The last scene for me made the movie worth a lot of the boredom that I was suffering for the first two acts. That last scene was just so fun, and I went I went and saw it with my girlfriend, and we were just kind of like giggling on the way out, and she was like, "Well." at least there was something great in it, you know, at the end, the end was like fun and crazy, but we, I don't, we didn't know anything about the context of what was going on and then rewriting history. It's been great to learn about that afterwards, um, looking into the film and thinking about it. But yeah, no, I think I thought the end was great. And the flamethrower payoff was so super, fun. super fun, super duper fun. And by going with that ending, he kind of does what, what Jordan Peele does at the end of get out where, at the end of Get Out, he could have ended that movie with the cop car pulling up and the guy getting arrested, and he would have given you one emotional beat and one message, but instead, by having his friend get out of the car, you you get all the stuff of, like, he's about to get shot by the police. You get all the, all the theming that Peel wants you to get. And then on top of that gives you a happy ending. Mm, mm, and with this, if you just showed the, the Tate murders... Yes, you'd be showing what really happened and you'd get the feeling of, of tragedy, but that feeling of tragedy still is with you when that film ends. That overhead shot oh, looking over. It, yeah, the it way, gave, it the, gave me chills. The Maurice Jar score that plays as the gate opens, like it's all once upon a time in Hollywood. It's a fairy tale. It's 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 what could have happened if if life were movies. Is is what exactly. Saying, yes. And, and and that's the sort of central tragedy of 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 a lot of his recent movies mm. of of wishing that life could be more like movies um and i don't i think it's incredibly an incredibly moving ending and when you hear her voice on the intercom it's like this disembodied thing from almost like from the afterlife it's it's very powerful all of it went over my head i had no idea i was like just okay. like the crane at the ending it's shot over right. movie. it's <laughs> over that's it yeah, well, I think that wraps up our thoughts on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's been an hour and thirteen. Any final thoughts, guys? Keep it quick. I think the the ending and the somberness and the the just just this the like sweet loving care that he that he handles this this really horrific tragedy makes makes the film in all of its sort of. Um, missteps in a in a in sm- small missteps in my opinion um it makes them all worth it and i think it it really it really i don't know it 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 did something that i wasn't expecting at all um and i really really loved it i thought it was really it's, good even the violence is strangely moving like, yeah, yeah because it's also about like his friendship rick and, and cliff's friendship and when when cliff rides off in the in the ambulance and he says you're a good friend cliff and he says like i try and he gets carted off you know like it's 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 sort of about this idea of <laughs> of um real even in the midst of all the kind of fakeness of hollywood and all the emptiness of hollywood 
you know, there's there are those real cores, which are the relationships and the friendships and those sort of things. I'm stealing a little from Mick LaSalle, I realize, as I say <laughs> this, because he, he said something similar. And um, other than that, I would also just say that the, the movie... It, it does a good job as being a movie about Hollywood. It does a good job of avoiding the cliches of either being like Hollywood is an empty, sick place or Hollywood is magical. Like yeah, so many movies yeah. fall into those things. And somehow he's able to show all those different modes, the innocence and hope with, with Tate and Polanski and the, the promise of their careers and the insecurity of, of the waning career of, of Rick and uh, the contentment of just a stable menial mm, career mm. with um with cliff and the the sick decay and degradation of the manson family and and how all of those different careers and all those different the the the, the manson girl with her sick ideas and her, her feet up on cliff's windshield and sharon tate happily watching her movie with her feet up um are you know they kind of uh, all come from the same place and come from the same aspiration. Again, I'm stealing from Mick as I say this, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they all come from Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps it. I'm gonna keep fighting tuberculosis or whatever. <laughs> I have. Get better, Isaac. <laughs> and uh, you know, we'll just end it there. Everything Comes From Something is currently 100% fan funded, and the show wouldn't happen without supporters like you, especially. Our executive producers, Darren O'Neill, Kiana Yap, and Eric and Ariel Walk, thank you so much for your support of the show. And of course, even if you can't give financially, you can continue to support us by just listening to our episodes, giving them ratings on iTunes, and telling friends about the podcast. Even share a podcast episode. If you think it's insightful or exciting or entertaining, it doesn't matter. Uh, we just are trying to get the word out about the show. We believe in our creative product, and we hope that you believe in it too with us. So we love you guys and we will see you next week.